Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to uh, two openings of Scripture, 1 John chapter 4 and John chapter 16. We've been talking about the Holy Ghost and the different ways that uh, the Bible says He'll be our help and so forth. We've seen the um, examples in the Scripture in the book of Acts, the five different times where an individual or a group of people were filled with the Holy Ghost, how that they all, the Bible tells us that it's connected, each one of those events was connected with speaking in tongues. So we have to conclude from the Bible's example that speaking in other tongues is the Bible evidence to being filled with the Spirit. First John chapter 4, verse 4, Paul, um, John, writing to the church, says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Now, the them he's uh, making reference to are the evil spirits that operate in this world that he identified in the previous verses. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Thank God we have the greater one. Thank God we have the greater one. Now Jesus, talking about the Holy Ghost in John chapter 14, verse 16. The last night that he was with his disciples, the night that he was betrayed and um, delivered to uh, Herod the next day. It says, and Jesus said to them, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Now, the Amplified Bible, the Greek word is for comforter is paraclete, and it uh, has a variety of meanings, and the Amplified brings those out. So it identifies the comforter as the counselor, the helper, the intercessor, the advocate, the strengthener, and the standby. And that's who's with us forever. Amen. Now, I want you to turn with me to First uh, Samuel chapter 30. You know, the, certainly the God's plan of redemption and Jesus fulfilling that plan of redemption enabled us to have eternal life, which means our spirits are recreated, made righteous by Jesus' sacrifice. And because of Jesus, well, because of God's plan and Jesus fulfilling that plan, we receive the Holy Ghost not only in, in salvation, which deposits the love of God on the inside of us and produces what the Bible calls in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit as a result of our salvation. But there's also a second working of the Holy Ghost that we've talked about, and that is the baptism of the Spirit. That's identified in Acts chapter 2 and verse 4. But Jesus told them what the Holy Ghost would do when he comes. Acts 1.8, Jesus said to the disciples, You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall receive power. So apparently the new birth, the Holy Ghost operating in the new birth, is not a work of power. It's a work of righteousness. It makes us right before God. It gives us right standing or a position before God as if we had never sinned. But Jesus told the people, the disciples particularly, those that had already been born again, recreated in spirit, their spirits recreated by the power of the Holy Ghost. He said, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power. God wants us to have power and wants us to exercise power here in the earth. He wants that. He made provisions for that. Well, why, do we have, why are we going to look at an Old Testament event or example? Well, if you think about it, God didn't change because we got saved. God was the same before Jesus came to the earth as he is today. God never changes. And so God showing his willingness or the Old Testament, maybe we'll say it better this way, the Old Testament giving us examples of God showing his, will, his willingness to help and deliver Israel, his servants, 
is a good example for us to know what the Holy Ghost will do today. He didn't change. Old Testament, New Testament, God's the same. Old Testament, New Testament, the Holy Ghost is the same. Old Testament versus New Testament, the will of God is the same. None of that changed. So I believe, as uh, Paul wrote to us um, in the letter to the Corinthians, that the Old Testament events and occurrences are as types and shadows for us. In other words, they're examples from the previous covenant, the old covenant, that wasn't as good as what we've got. But they were examples. The events and the operation of God in the Old Testament is an example to us for what the Holy Ghost will do. So let's start in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Here's the story of David operating as, uh, well, at this point in time, he's uh, still living in exile because King Saul wants to kill him. The previous chapter, chapter 29, talks about how the Philistines were going to go out and fight against the Israelites. If you remember the story of David after he had to flee uh, the boundaries of Israel, flee from Saul because Saul was jealous of him and wanted to kill him. David's operating as a guerrilla fighter working on behalf of Israel undercover. He's doing secret raids against some of Israel's enemies and so forth and, uh, and somehow pulls off to where Achish, who is a king of the Philistines, trusted him. And so when um, the Philistines were going to come out against Israel and war against Israel, Achish wants to, uh, David to fight with them. But there are other kings of the Philistines that wouldn't have it. And so God provided a means and a, and a way for David to escape the battle and still not lose his place with the um, Philistines, literally with Achish, that he was uh, living in within his territory and within his boundaries in exile from Israel. So when he comes back from this place, the other kings of the Philistines would have it. There were five different Philistine kings, and they outruled Achish. And so David is coming back to his headquarters city, which is Ziklag, after being protected from having to fight against Israel, which he wouldn't have done. Uh, the point I'm trying to get across, I guess, from not doing a good job of saying it, but the point I'm trying to make is if David had been allowed to go with the Philistines against Israel, he would have been fighting Philistines from behind. It says he was in the, the rearward of the group. And he would have exposed himself and everything that he was doing and would have put his life and the life of his men in jeopardy. But God spared him from that. So in chapter 30, beginning in verse 1, it says, And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag, they're returning home, their headquarters city, on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they had taken the women captives that were therein, they slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire. And their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the wife of Nebel, the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord. I like this story because it shows how God's working behind the scenes when oftentimes we don't know and we don't see it. 
This was a turnaround event in David's life. Now, you remember the story of David, how that uh, Samuel the prophet came down to his house and anointed him in secret to be the next king of Israel. Well, Samuel had to keep that quiet and David had to keep that quiet because Saul would have certainly not been agreeable to turning over the throne of Israel to David. We see that by him trying to kill him afterwards anyway. But that event where Samuel came down and anointed him to be king of Israel was over 12 years before this in 1 Samuel chapter 30. 12 years, more than 12 years. You ever had to wait on anything from God for 12 years? I wonder if anywhere along that way, during that 12-year period of time, I wonder if David ever wondered if it's ever going to work. I wonder if the devil ever spoke into his ear saying, well, that was God's plan, but you've messed that up and now you're out or something to that effect. I can't imagine the devil leaving the next king of Israel, the man that's anointed to be king of Israel alone for 12 years. Now, we know he was about 17, somewhere around 17, when he went out against Goliath and defeated him. And we know that Samuel came down and anointed him to be the next king in secret before the event happened with Goliath, before the great the battle between David and Goliath and the great victory of, in Israel. Now, I'm not uh, throwing stones or criticizing anything or anybody in this story because you can well imagine that if you came home and your house was burned and your family was gone, about the only encouraging thing there would be is that there's no blood around but that doesn't necessarily mean your family's okay, does it? They could just as easily take them somewhere else and kill them. And so the, the people, David included, were greatly grieved. I like the fact that the Bible tells us that they, they wept until they had no more power to weep. The great grief is identified. But then it says that David has trouble from another angle because the, the people that come back with him are blaming him for them being gone from the city, gone from their families, and all these things have happened because of what David did. So now David's got something that he's really going to have to take care of. David comes to the place where he can't just grieve for his own family. He's got to do something regarding the, the Israelites and his mighty men that want to stone him. So notice it says David encouraged himself in the Lord. This word encouraged is interesting to me because it says to fasten on or to seize to be strong to strengthen to fortify it means to conquer now when David encourages himself in the Lord how does he do that how does he do that what does David do to encourage himself in the Lord it doesn't even say that he tried to persuade the people of anything I would imagine that this would be a point for David to say, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, guys, before you kill me. Remember the story I told you about Samuel coming down to anoint me to be the next king. This is all part of God's plan. He didn't do that. He knows that nobody's going to listen to him because they're overcome with grief. It wouldn't matter what he told them, but it does matter what he tells himself. He encourages himself in the Lord. He seizes upon something. I have to believe that, it, that he seized upon the promise 
that was made to him to be the next king. He's remembering a 12-year-old promise. What else would encourage him? What else would strengthen him? He comes to a place where he realizes, wait a minute, this doesn't have to be the end of the world. Notice the next thing it says. And David said to Abathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring hither, bring me hither the ephod, and Abathar brought thither the ephod to David. And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. Now I want you to notice something about this. I think there are some real great points in this uh, story that we can apply to ourselves. Notice that David's first response was to grieve. Like I said, I can't fault him. I can't fault any of the guys for doing that. But it was only after he came to the place where he had wept until he had no more power to weep that he thought about asking God about this situation. Now, remember, the, the Holy Ghost is given to us. Whatever God does in this story is by the power of the Holy Ghost. It's the operation of God to keep his covenant, to protect his servants. The Bible says we're sons and daughters, but Israel was servants. Well, the implication there is who are you going to treat better, your servants or your children? You're going to be equally as good to your, at least as good to your children as you would be your servants, wouldn't you? Are you better to, the, to your kids than the plumber that comes to fix the toilets in your house? Are you better to your kids or are you better to the guys doing the landscape work in the yard? Who are you better to? Well, the kids win hands down every time. They may not think so all the time. But they do. But until David dealt with his emotions, he wasn't in a place to hear from God. And I want you to know something else about this story. God doesn't go out of his way to talk to David to tell him anything. David has to pursue God to find out. I wonder how many of us have let emotions cloud our judgment or at least delay Seeking the Lord's will and the Lord's plan and what direction we need to go next. But these things are all examples of what Jesus said the Holy Ghost would do. The Bible says that uh, Jesus on the last night of his earthly ministry before he went to the cross spent it with his disciples and he told them a lot. John's gospel tells us that he told them a lot about the Holy Ghost. He said he would testify of me. He said he would remind you of all things whether I, what I have said to you. And he said he'll show you things to come. You can see God doing all of those things right here. Not because they were filled with the Holy Ghost. They couldn't. But they had a promise, a covenant promise of help from God. Well, what did help from God look like? It didn't look like anything until they pursued God to inquire. Now, we've got the greater one on the inside of us. They had a covenant with the greater one. But notice God was standing by. He was ready to strengthen David. But only after David pursued it. Only after David inquired of the Lord. It was only when David got God involved in the situation. On his end. That he heard anything at all. Emotions are great things sometimes. But they're poor guides. We get taken up by our emotions. Overcome by our emotions. That's the hardest place to hear from God. David had to get all his out. And he inquired of the Lord. Well, the Lord told him what to do. The Lord told him to pursue. You will overtake them and you'll recover all. Well, that means get everybody back, doesn't it? I don't think at this point anybody in the story, David included, is worried about the stuff. 
the cattle or the flocks, the herds or whatever spoils that the Amalekites had taken. That's not important at this point. But the people, the sons and daughters are. But again, I have to point out, God wasn't there whispering in David's ears before he ever got home, said, I've got bad news for you. When you round the corner and get within sight of Ziklag, everything's going to be on fire. But don't worry. We'll take care of it. I think a lot of us would like it for it to work that way. But that's not the way it works. After David dispelled his emotions, got control of himself, then he inquired of the Lord, and God was right there to give him the answer. He told him, Pursue, for thou shalt overtake him, them, and without fail recover all. You'll get everything back. Well, that's good for David to know. I wonder if he told his men that. We don't have any record of it if he did. I wonder if he thought they would listen to him if he had. I don't know. But he knows because he's the one that inquired of the Lord. Verse 9. So David went, he and the 600 men that were with him, and came to the brook Beshore where those that were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men for 200 abode behind, which, was, which were so faint that they could not go over the brook Beshore. Now I want you to notice something. 200 of his men, 200 of his 600 men, one-third, were so weak they couldn't continue the pursuit. Well, why were they so weak? The implication here, here is, and I don't think I'm adding anything to the Scripture. You judge it for yourself. But the implication here is they're still in grief. The ones that didn't deal with their emotions didn't have the strength to take hold of what God had for them. Emotions can be a wonderful thing, but they can rob you of God's plan and God's blessings. So David left them behind. He left them on the other side of the brook, and he and his 400 men went. Verse 11, and they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread, and he did eat, and they made him drink water. And they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins, And when he had eaten, his spirit came again to him, for he had eaten no bread nor drunk any water three days and three nights. Now, here's another situation that I think bears a parallel. And that is when we're facing a hard time, when we're facing a a test or a trial, when we're in the middle of a hard place, we need to keep our eyes open to those God sends to us to help. Now, it's not that way all the time, but it's that way a lot of the time. One of the things that, uh, uh, that the Lord has really dealt with me about over the years is um, I have a tendency to look to the outside to get help or hire help or whatever the case might be for whatever we need to do with the church. I started off wanting to hire everything out. Let's get us a music minister. Let's get us a children's minister. Let's get somebody on staff. Let's do all this other stuff. And the Lord really dealt with me strongly in the early years. And he told me something very specifically. Well, he got the point across. He asked me some questions. Let me see it for myself. But he asked me, would I call you to do something that I didn't provide you the means to get it done? Well, no. That wouldn't be right. The Bible says who God calls, he equips. We look at that as individual equipment or individual ministry gifts or special anointings or something like that. But the Lord dealt with me and has dealt with me throughout all the years, probably 25 of the last 30 years, 
to make me know that if he wants me to do something, if he wants the church to accomplish something, the people to get it done are already in place. And if he gives us something to do that's outside of what we have, then he'll provide it. So my prayer at the church has been, Lord, send me the people you want me to have and raise up the ones that, we, that we've already got. Because that's how God works. The Bible says we're complete in him. Well, that means us as individuals, but it also means us as a church body, doesn't it? We'd also be complete in him, working together. So whenever we come up on a situation where it's new territory or starting something new or whatever, we start looking around inside the church. There's got to be somebody here for that. Now, sometimes it takes some persuading to talk somebody else, in, talk to somebody in the church and convince them that they're the one. Because many times they don't see themselves as the one. But if God's got something for us to do, he gives us what we need to get it done. So the principle here that I see is that David was aware enough of this guy that he found to figure out how can he help me on what God has told me to do? How can he help me in my pursuit? Well, God's got people to help you too. And they're not in some far away place. They're right close. But very few of us ever rely on the Holy Ghost to do that, to bring the right people to us and bring the right people to, to help us and, and get the work done that God has for us to do. So many times we're looking for a professional to come in and fix something. Beware of those professionals that fix things. Sometimes we're paying for what we think. Sometimes we're paying for what the individual calls themselves rather than what benefit they can really bring. Well, back to this guy. He hadn't eaten anything for three days and nights. So David says to him in verse 13, To whom belongest thou, and whence art thou? Where'd you come from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me because three days before I fell sick. We made an invasion upon the south of the, the somebody place, Cherethites, maybe. And upon the coast which belongs to Judah, and upon the south of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. Now, David would have every right, and he probably had to hold some of his guys back, to be honest with you, at least in my thinking. But he would have every right to kill this guy because he was part of the raiding party. But there's a different purpose that he used him for, a different purpose entirely. So David asked him, can you bring me down to this company? Can you show me where they are? And he said, swear unto me by God that thou wilt neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I'll bring you down to this company. David's found the one thing that he didn't have, and that's somebody that can take him to the camp. And when he had brought him down, behold, they were spread abroad upon all the earth, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. Folks, here's another principle that you need to be aware of where the devil is concerned. When you're in the middle of a hard place, when you're in the middle of a test, trial, or affliction, particularly things that have gone on and dragged on for a long time, the devil is having a party because he thinks you're sunk. But it's during the devil's party that God moves. David said in the 23rd Psalm, Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
God doesn't have any problem. Now, you may not like this, and I know sometimes it's not comfortable for us, but God doesn't have any problem letting the devil think he's got a leg up before he shows up and shows who's really God, who's God and who's got the power. That's uncomfortable for us because when the devil's having his party, it's at our expense. And oftentimes it's because we look like we're the biggest failure there is. And I see so many people taking scriptures like 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And they'll pass that off and they say, well, yeah, that's what the Bible says, but that's not the way it is in my life. Where Paul said to the Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Too many Christians look at it and say, yeah, well, that might have been true for Paul, but that's sure not true for everybody else. They look at scriptures where God said, I am God, I will never leave you nor forsake you. They think, well, that sounds good, but it sure hadn't seen him in a while. God doesn't care if it gets down to the last minute. The last minute doesn't change God one bit. Early or late, God's the same. Get used to late. Late does not mean God's given up. Late does not mean there's no power left. Late doesn't even mean you've messed up on your own. Late just means God's going to work and move in the middle of the devil's party. And that's what happened here. They were spread abroad upon all the earth, eating and drinking and dancing because all the great spoil that they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. This is not just the stuff that they got from Ziklag. They're on a raiding party and going through several cities, apparently, in both Philistine territory. Remember, the Philistines are all fighting the Israelites. So they can't be bothered by what the Amalekites are doing. So they've raided cities of Israel. They've raided the Philistine cities. And they've got more than they know what to do with. And they're all patting themselves on the back and eating and drinking and having a big time. But it says, David smote them from the twilight even unto the evening of the next day. And there escaped not a man of them save 400 young men which rode upon camels and fled. And David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives. And there was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil nor any of the things that they had taken to to them. And David recovered all. Well, let's keep reading. David took all the flocks and the herds which they drave before those other cattle and said, this is David's spoil. In other words, David takes a big portion for himself. Well, rightly so. Everybody else that was ready to kill David didn't take the same position as he did, trying to find out from the Lord, what would you have us do here? This looks bad, but what do we do? The Bible says the Holy Ghost is a counselor. And when we rely on him for counsel, He'll tell us what to do. Paul said, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they're the sons of God. Well, wasn't the Holy Ghost leading them in the Old Testament? Granted, it was for a, in a different manner or a different method. All they had was the ephod, rolling the dice, so to speak, seeing which way God wanted them to go. But God always honored that because they couldn't have the Spirit of God on the inside of them like we do. But it's supernatural protection or direction, I should say. It's Holy Ghost direction, just like he'll do for us. Jesus said, 
In John chapter 16, he said, and in that day, talking about the church age, the day we live in, he said, and in that day, you'll ask me no more questions. But whatever you ask the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. The implication is answers. Whatever answers you need, God will give to you. I wonder if that's part of the work of the Holy Ghost today too. Jesus said it was. He said he'll show you things to come. He'll show you things to come. He'll show you things to come. I wonder how many of us miss what God's trying to show us that's coming down the road because we're so bound up in the trouble that surrounds us. Maybe we're still operating according to our emotions like they did. And remember, they didn't hear anything from God until after they dealt with those emotions. Hardest time to hear from God is when you're anxious. That's one of the great benefits of speaking in other tongues. Because if you'll pray in tongues long enough, your mind will get quiet. And when your mind gets quiet, that's when you can hear from the Holy Ghost. Because he doesn't speak to your mind, he speaks to your spirit. But the answers will come floating up from your spirit into your mind. But your mind can't handle it when it's racked with emotions, worry and fear and so forth. So David recovered all. Not one person was killed. Not one thing was lost. These men that came with David to the city of Ziklag and saw it burning just three days before. Now they've got everything back. I wonder what they think about David now. I wonder if they thought this out. Man, what would have happened if we had stoned him like we wanted to back in Ziklag? How would this have turned out? Well, nobody else would have known what to do because nobody else was in the position of leadership. God wouldn't have told anybody else what to do because he used the man that was in charge to give direction to the troops. So verse 31, David came, returned literally to the 200 men which were so faint that they could not follow David whom they had made also to abide at the brook Besor. And they went forth to meet David and to meet the people that were with him. And when David came near to the people, he saluted them. Then answered all the wicked men and men of Belial. These are part of David's 400 that went to battle. These answered all the wicked men and men of Belial of those that went with David and said, because they went not with us, we will not give them aught or anything of the spoil that we have recovered, save to every man his wife and his children that they may lead them away and depart. Then said David, you shall not do so, my brethren, with that which the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered the company that came against us into our own hand. For who will hearken unto you in this matter? But as his part is that goeth down to the battle, so shall be the part by, be that tarrieth by the stuff. They shall part alike. In other words, everybody gets an equal share, whether you fought or whether you stayed by the stuff. And it was so from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel unto this day. Now, folks, the principle very simply is this. God treats all of his children the same, no matter what level of battles or fights you've been involved in. He treats all of his children the same. This is the way that God operates. He's just as good to the guy that has less trouble than you do. Because he's a good father. So this becomes a statute and an ordinance. It becomes the way that Israel operates from that day forward. This was a big deal, folks. 
We take it as a light thing, just a side note, but this was a big deal. God provides everybody with an equal share. Not everybody has an equal task, but everybody's rewarded their portion according to their faithfulness. Now, the next chapter, we won't take time to read it, but the next chapter tells us that the three days that David was pursuing the Amalekites and recovering all the stuff and the people and everything from Ziklag, during those three days, Israel has been fighting against the Philistines. And it tells us that in that battle, Saul and Jonathan both fell to the sword. It tells us that three days after they get back to Ziklag, they hear. So this would have been six days from the time that they first came upon the, the burning ruins of Ziklag. Six days after that, three, three of those days they went and recovered the people and the stuff. I'm sure it took them a while to get back home. But three days after their victory, David hears how that Saul and Jonathan had died. The guy that comes with the news is the guy that killed Saul at Saul's request, according to his story. But David kills him for being willing to touch God's anointed and put Saul to death. And it's within just a couple more days. We don't know exactly how long, but within a couple more days, David is king of all of Israel. Now, if you back up those six or seven or eight days, whatever they are, to where David comes to Ziklag and the thing is a smoldering ruin. All the families are gone. All their stuff is gone. The stuff that they've accumulated during these last number of years, maybe not 12 in total, but close to 12 years, where David's been operating as a guerrilla fighter on the behalf of Israel. They were very rich. The Bible talks about how that when David provides an offering for Solomon to build the temple many years later. It talks about the spoil that the, that the generals and the captains of the army brought in, much of which they had gathered and accumulated during these times when David was running and hiding from Saul. So within just a short period of time, seven or eight days, after the greatest trouble the most grievous circumstance that David and his men have ever experienced. David is king of Israel. Now, if we were there, knowing the end of the story, walking with David up to Ziklag when he sees it burning and smoldering and in ruins, if anybody had been able to say, David, don't worry about it, within a week you'll be king of Israel, that would have been pretty hard to accept, wouldn't it? But this was a complete turnaround situation in the life of David. And it was orchestrated by the Holy Ghost once David started seeking him. Once he started inquiring of the Lord. Once he started finding out the plan and the purpose of God. Well, we get that plan and purpose of God revealed to us by the Spirit of God, don't we? He encouraged himself on the Lord. He seized upon something that strengthened him. It had to be part of God. At least part of it had to be God's promise. Part of it had to be the promise that Samuel had made on behalf of God that David would be the next king. 
So here you've got a picture of the Holy Ghost bringing to our remembrance everything that Jesus has said, reminding us of the Word, testifying of the Word made flesh. And then we also have an example of the Holy Ghost showing him things to come, which Jesus said he'll do for us too. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. You know, one of the, I think about this kind of stuff a lot. Paul said, writing to the church, he said, don't neglect such a great salvation as what we have. Now, he's writing that to people that are saved. But he's saying, don't neglect the great salvation that's available to us. I think about that a lot in a lot of people's situations, see how they, seeing from the outside, how they handle certain things in their lives. And I think, you know, when those people get to heaven, they're going to realize that they forfeited everything that they needed and wanted from God because they didn't rely on the Holy Ghost to give it to them. They didn't rely on the Holy Ghost to lead them into it. Jesus said the Holy Ghost was the spirit of truth. Many translations say the spirit of reality. Well, the reality of what? The reality of the things that belong to us because of Jesus' sacrifice. Job said this. When Job, uh, not Job, Jonah, excuse me. I started to put Job in the belly of the fish. But when Jonah was in the belly of the fish, he said, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercies. And what he's calling the lying vanity is the experience, the physical reality of, the fact, of the, the, the fact that he is in the belly of a fish. I don't, I don't know if, if I think about these things like other people do, but it just dawned on me a couple of years back that Jonah in the belly of the fish is not going to have a lot of room to move around. It's not like he's going to be in an empty warehouse in there. He's experiencing some nasty, nasty stuff. If claustrophobia is a problem for him, those days were hell. Yet in the belly of the fish, experiencing who knows what, he says, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. I wonder how many people are forsaking their own mercy now, whether it's healing, whether it's the leading of the Holy Ghost, whether it's discerning the plan and the purpose of God for their lives, whatever it is, financial prosperity or whatever. I wonder how many people are going to get to heaven and realize what they forsook. Yet God, on the other hand, said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I wonder if that's true of the Holy Ghost. Will he ever not give us direction when we need it, when we call upon him? Will he ever not provide the help that Jesus said that he would be? Would he ever not strengthen us when we rely on him to do so? Would he ever not be our standby? Well, if he's ever not our standby, then he left. Thank God the word says he won't do that. What do you need from him? What help do you need? What counsel do you need? What strengthening do you need? What standby do you need? The Holy Ghost is there to help you. But even as in this story, God doesn't move until they inquire. God doesn't tell David anything until David puts him first above his emotions, above his grief, above the circumstances that he's in the middle of, above the fact that his trusted men, his captains and generals, whatever he has, want to put him to death over this thing. 
But once he gains control of his emotions, gets past his emotions, then he inquires of the Lord, and God's right there to give him the answer. I wonder if God would have said, well, good, David, I'm glad you're finally here. I was wondering how long you're going to cry about this. Now looking back at it from the end of the story back to the first of it, what was there to cry about? There was no evidence that anybody had been killed. Whatever they were crying about, whatever they were weeping over, whatever they were being grieved about was something they were worrying about that hadn't come to pass. I wonder how many things we worry about never come to pass too. I wonder if David would have handled this situation differently. Would you if you were in his place? Next burning city you came to, would you have stopped and said, wait a minute, we need to talk to God about this. Before we fly off the handle, before we lose our stuff. Let's check with God. Jesus said, and I'll pray the Father and he will give you another comforter. Counselor, helper, strengthener, standby. Well, Paul gives us the example in Romans chapter 8, how the Holy Ghost helps us in prayer. To pray for things that we don't know about. It's really not even a help in prayer so much as it is a meeting of our weakness. A meeting of the needs that we have because of our lack of knowledge. Well, why would we think you access one part of the Holy Ghost benefit or counselor or help differently than you would something else? If he overcomes our lack of knowledge because we don't know how to pray for things as we ought by speaking in other tongues. Why would, that, why would we think that wouldn't be the way we access all of the help of the Holy Ghost? He becomes your counselor as you speak in other tongues. He becomes your helper as you speak in other tongues. He becomes your strengthener as you speak in other tongues. And Paul told us that. He said he that speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself or strengthens himself spiritually. Praying in tongues is a way to get the strength of the Holy Ghost operating for you. Too many times people are too busy for it, though. For the same reason that David and his crowd were. They've got other things to think about. They've got other things going on. They've got other things that are occupying their minds. And sometimes almost as a last resort, we'll say, okay, well, we better pray. How many experiences are we going to have like this where God comes through for us before we learn? Praying in the Holy Ghost is a place to start, not the place to work yourself to. It's the starting point because it's how we access all the power of God in our lives. It's how we put the greater one to work. David encouraged himself in the Lord. When we pray in other tongues, the Holy Ghost brings to our remembrance things that God said. He brings the scripture, the truth to us that we may seize upon that instead of the emotions concerning the circumstances or adversity that we're in. I'm of the opinion, you judge it for yourself, but I'm of the opinion that you access every part of the greater one's work by speaking in other tongues. Every part of the Holy Ghost work, everything Jesus said the Holy Ghost would do for you, you access that by speaking in other tongues. Why else would the Holy Ghost give us a record 
throughout the book of Acts that speaking in other tongues is the initial evidence of being filled with him. It'd be real easy for him just to leave out some examples so that the church would be justified in saying, well, some people speak in tongues, other people don't speak in tongues. You just never know. A lot of people say that anyway. But the Bible refutes that outright. Everybody that was filled with the Holy Ghost throughout the book of Acts spoke in other tongues. Everybody. Well, then shouldn't the speaking in tongues be important? God made, in, made enough of an effort to make sure that we know that there's no example of anybody in Scripture that's been filled with the Holy Ghost that didn't speak with other tongues. So he considers it something important. Paul considered it pretty important. He told the Corinthian church, I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than you all. Well, you wouldn't thank God for something you didn't care about, would you? You wouldn't thank God for something that was unimportant. He said, I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than all of you. I wonder if that had anything to do with the revelation he received. I wonder if it had anything to do with the deliverance that he enjoyed time after time after time. Now, even at that, Paul didn't like the way it was going. He wanted to be delivered from the problem before it arose. And he prayed about it. But he came to the place where he realized the power of the Holy Ghost would deliver him and set him free and overcome anything and everything the devil threw at him. Oh, that we would have the same care that Paul did about speaking in other tongues. That we would make it the same priority that Paul did. That we would give ourselves to it so that the greater one can do his work. I'll bet you that God is frustrated with a lot of his children because he's provided help. He's provided an answer for anyone and everyone, no matter who they are and what situation they're in. But they won't come to him for the help. They won't put the Holy Ghost to work to be their helper. I decided a long time ago, folks, I'm not going to be part of that group. At the very least, when I get to heaven, the Lord's going to be able to say, well, at least he tried. He sure was speaking in tongues enough to try to get the job done. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. You have everything you'll ever need to overcome anything the devil ever throws at you. It may not be visible, but it's the spiritual strength that we all have. Because the helper lives on the inside of us. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you, Father, for the great Holy Spirit, the mighty one, whom you've given to be our teacher and our guide. Holy Spirit, help us to look to you for the answers. Help us. Guide us into the reality of your work in us. Guide us into the truth, the reality of that which you will do for us. Bring the word to our remembrance, Lord. Holy Spirit, strengthen us. Show us things to come. Provide for us the help that we need in every situation. We rely upon you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you never leave us nor forsake us. You'll never refuse to help us.
you will guide us into all truth. You'll guide us into the truth of the reality of the victory that we need in our, in our lives now. Whether it be victory over healing. I'm sorry, victory over sickness. Whether it's victory over poverty or lack. Thank you that you are our help. You are our strength. And you guide us into the truth of the things Jesus provided for us. We love you, Holy Spirit. Forgive us for not giving you the place of prominence and priority in our lives that we should have. But we will do that from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Say it with me. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.